Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined with a few of my colleagues. Uh, first up, Ryan Sweet, Director of Real-Time Economics. Okay, Ryan, go ahead, gloat. Go ahead, feel free. I'm not, I'm not one to gloat. I'm just saying you doubted me. You questioned the strength of the employment number. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, so everyone knows Ryan does deserve uh, uh, more than a pat on the back. Uh, maybe a few kudos. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, w what else we should. Uh, oh, there we go. I see a happy clapping sign here. Uh, oh, by the way, I should mention we're on YouTube now. Uh, so if you're interested, go to YouTube, uh, search for Inside Economics, and you'll see the, the the happy sign that Chris put up. And you'll also see his red Speedo shirt. You know, he's, uh, he's, he's, out, he's finally gotten broken free from the Howdy Doody Speedo. What is that? Oh, swoosh. What wasn't that speedo? What is that's that? That's the uh, that's the recovery right there. That's uh, oh, there's a rest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so just so everyone knows, today's Job Friday. We got the employment numbers for uh, the month of July, and we're going to be talking pretty much about that the whole time today. A very strong number, and Ryan, you nailed it. You got it exactly right, I think. What so? What was the number, and what was nine forty three? And I was a, a little bit above a, uh, one million. You're a little bit above one so million. The consensus was uh, eight fifty, eight sixty. So, right, came in a, a lot better than many people were expecting. But wait for the revisions, right? Yeah, yeah we can talk about that <laughs> later. The revisions to June were really good. They were good, and a million might be right. So. And I think you know, Chris, what was your four? You were close too. Chris was really. Uh, close. I, I said eight sixty. Hi, please. That's close too. Yeah. See, now, he, he always goes with the consensus. You never really no, no, that's above that consensus. It was above consensus. 10,000. Yeah, like 10, <laughs> <laughs> that's how he does it. He's very, you know, he just, he, he plays the odds. You know, I'm going to go right a little bit of the consensus, a little bit oh, below the consensus. Well, price is right, you know. Yeah, the, yeah, that's right. The price is right. So, but anyway, Ryan, good job. Very good. Uh, is this fair? I, I think I guided you a little bit lower. You were talking more. Yeah, I was, I was above. And then you talked me down a little bit. You put talked a little sense into me. Okay, there you go. And, and of course, uh, we have Dante. Dante is our first repeat uh, participant in the podcast. Way to go, Dante. Honored to be here, as always. You deserve, a, you deserve a pat on the back or a kudo <laughs> or something, too. I'm not sure what, but, you know, yeah. And oh, there you go. That, that's, what is that? That is a, a uh, thumbs up. up. Thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs up. But, Dante, what the hell, man? <laughs> <laughs> You are so far off. What what is going I, on? I'm not sure what forecast you're talking about. 800,000. 800, that was my forecast. You can't have so. two forecasts. Uh, that doesn't work that way. Uh, Ryan, explain Dante's mis mishap here. What, what, so what happened? Dante helps create the ADP estimate that we work with, uh, ADP on, uh, and he puts it out the Wednesday morning before the jobs number. Uh, and he created a lot of unnecessary stress for me this month because what was the ADP number, Dante? It was uh, 330. Yeah, and this measures private employment. And what was the actual number? 700. Somewhere around, it was around 700, yeah. Yeah, hmm. something like 700, yeah. I'd like to say that the ADP number helped guide you lower also, Ryan. So, you know, you can thank, thank the ADP number for bringing you down a little <laughs> bit from your, your cloud of 1.3 million or wherever you were originally. Yeah, I was, I was, I was too high. You were talking one six at one point. Yeah. <laughs> I was not talking one six. I, said, <laughs> I heard one six somewhere. I don't know where that was. I said was. it wouldn't be surprised, but. 
All right. Well, uh, you know, uh, Dante, uh, it's not fair that you know, you're, you're taking the blame. Hey, in all fairness, though, I mean, the, your estimate, Ryan, is after all the data is in, um, you can you can adjust your models and pick which models you think are more relevant given the circumstances that we're in. Dante, and it's not fair to say Dante. I'm, I'm part of this. <laughs> yeah, we can keep saying Dante. Well, we, we are going to keep saying Dante, but That's just fine. so everyone knows, I'm part of that team as well. That estimate is actually made a week, almost a week before the actual report, the BLS report. So ADP is a human resource company. They process, process payrolls. We get data for roughly, I don't know what, Dante, 24 million employees, something yep. like that, which is huge, large, about as big as the Bureau of Labor Statistics sample for its estimate of jobs. And we take the ADP uh, 24 million in, and then uh, do a number of things to make it comparable to the BLS and then try to predict the BLS with the ADP. Now, but we do that a week before the BLS actually comes out. So we don't have the benefit of all the other data that comes in in the week leading up to BLS. Uh, and also our model, you know, is doesn't change. I mean, it, we, we, like Ryan, I'm sure you're, you're saying I'm not using unemployment insurance claims uh, this month because that's, they're bogus for lots of different measurement issues. So I'm not going to use that. Whereas, you know, ADP, uh, because of the model is, is using that information. So, you know, the other thing I was going to point out is, I mean, Dante said like the underlying data was soft. And if you look at the unadjusted BLS number for private was, you know, it was still strong. It was strong, but it was, you know, or total was, was weak. It actually fell and normally falls in July. So I, maybe there's something going on with the, the way the seasonal adjustment, and which is very, very difficult to do accurately. And if you look at ADP's big misses, it comes in months where you get these like seasonal or calendar quirks. Yeah, and it, it, I'm sure we're talking over a lot of people's heads right now. We, we just kind of dove right into the wheat, dove deep into the rabbit hole immediately. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just a level set, that BLS number we got this morning, Friday morning, what is this? Friday, August, what, 6th? 6th. This is the data for July. I would characterize that report as being about as good as it gets. Would you, would you say that is the case? Would anyone disagree with that statement? No. You would yeah, have to yeah. really dig to find something to wobble about. It was, it was strong across the board. Yeah. So just what did, what did, what were the most impressive statistics uh, to you in the report? Dante, why don't, why don't you list what you think rank ordered? Cause there's a, a boatload of statistics in this report. What, what do you, what was the most impressive statistic in, in the report for you? Do you want me to give away my stat of the week? Cause that was my most impressive. Oh, my, okay. Let's do that, that right now. Yeah, let's do that. Go ahead. There, yeah, I went. yeah. All right. Well, I'll give you the number then it's uh, minus 560,000. Oh, that was mine. <laughs> I guess you know what it is. Thank That's Chris. the uh, long-term unemployed, right? 27 weeks or more. Yep. The decline in. The decline, decline in. in. Yep. That's right. It, but we're Chris, still... I have a backup. I got a backup. I got a backup for them. Okay. Me 2. too. 2.3 2. 2. million related. 2.3 million. That's the increase. No. 2.3 million is... From the, the, uh, from the start of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. That's right. You're right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> 2 point, there's 2.3 million more long-term unemployed 
unemployment by more than 27 weeks in July than pre-pandemic. So even though it came down by 560,000, which is, you're saying, uh, Dante, that's the, the biggest decline ever? No, the biggest decline so far in this cycle. Oh, okay. There was a big decline a few months ago, but this is by far the biggest that we've had since okay. recovery started. But we still, we're still got a ways to go here. We still have yep. two points. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that, so, so did you have a backup, Chris? No backup? I got a backup. Oh, you got a backup. Okay. We'll come <laughs> yeah. back to you. Yeah. yeah hey, yeah. you know what? This, my wife who listens to the podcast, she really likes the podcast. We kind of listened to it Friday night uh, after dinner or during dinner. It's glass of wine. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, glass of wine. More than one, usually. Actually, well, I was going to say something else, but I'm not going to. But, it's a long uh, podcast. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, we have a glass of wine. She sits there and dissects it. And now she's really into this game. So she wanted me to tell, give you a statistic. You ready? Oh, okay. And this is a non sequitur compared to you know, what we've been talking about. So it had nothing to do with anything. But it does have something to do with Wawa. Wawa. <laughs> We talk a lot about Wawa on this podcast, which for people that are listening in the UK, they go, what the hell are they talking about? Uh, Wawa is a, con- you would say a convenience store, right? Chain convenience. Would you say that? I think that's the, the, I would describe it. And here's the statistic. See if you can figure it out. 195 million. 195 million. The number Wawa. cups of coffee cups of served coffee. per year. Yeah. Damn right. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, Chris got that. He beat you, Ryan. Did you I see know. that? He beat you, man. He was fast. Did he get it too? You got it too, Ryan. No. I was in the process, and then you oh. came right in. For <laughs> ninety-five. When it comes you to, to raise coffee. your hand, you have to raise your hand, Ryan. Come on. What percent of those sales are from the Zandy household? Oh, <laughs> uh, I could calculate that. Oh, that's hundred. Oh, you didn't give me the. That's over a year, right? Not you. Know, you know, one hundred ninety-five million cups over a year. So I. I I would do let's say sixteen was it sixteen ounces sixteen no no th- 30, 32 ounces a, a day. Oh, this is boring. I'm gonna stop right there. Yeah, yeah, you get right. kind of get yeah. This is pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, that was her statistic. Uh, okay, um, Ryan, what was your uh, top statistic? Uh, most uh, upbeat statistic in the report. Thirteen percent year over year. Ooh. 13%. 13%. Oh. 13%. You know, Chris? Same report. Teleworked. Yeah. Not Wawa. We're going back to the employment report. The percentage that uh, were teleworked. Ooh, that would have been good, but no. Actually, do you know that statistic, Ryan? I, I didn't look this. I didn't look at it. I forgot. 13. I tied up all the good things to, in the report. Huh. That, I would want to know that one. So, so it's not 13% is not the, oh, the percentage of people who work from home. Another hint is that it's the largest on record. And I think we have data back into the early 1970s. Oh my gosh. And that's in the employment report. It is. Wow. I don't know. Dante, it's, do you it's a segue into like, we can talk more about it. You know, uh, that have to do with wages. It's wages. So it's, it's leisure hospitality. Increase. Oh, exactly. And leisure and hospitality. Oh, I see. It, it was so, wage. Average hourly earnings growth for leisure and hospitality. Correct. Year over year. Year over year. So it was very depressed a year ago. So, so there's some so-called base yeah, so, effects. Yeah, there's some base effects. But you hear all these anecdotes that restaurants, bars can't find people to work. Uh, yeah. They're raising their pay, but they're still struggling to find workers. So you know, I think getting lost in the shuffle is maybe the debate that you know, people don't want to go back to work at restaurants and bars. It's a tough job. 
and they may be career switching. So, you know, we could have this, some labor matching issues down the road. Yeah. Got it. Okay. My, my favorite statistic, uh, and I'm rounding here, but just to, you know, cause it, to be frank, I can't quite remember the third significant digit, but two thirds, two thirds. <clears throat> Is that the, the share of leisure and hospitality for total employment or the change in total employment? Do they account uh, for two thirds of the game? No, it's more like one third, right? Because leisure and hospitality is up three eighty, and total was up nine forty. What? So that's not two thirds. No. Oh, I was thinking private because you don't want to strip out the, the. See how he does that? He, like, yeah. You get well, you obviously. You obviously, you should guys. know that, Mark. You're stripping out. You're stripping yeah, out. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> I should have known that, right? <laughs> okay. Two, well, okay. Three forty-eight divided by seven hundred. Pretty close, actually. But that's not what I had in mind. But that's 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 not bad. It's not bad. It it is the uh, diffusion index. Uh, you know, uh, the percent of industries in the report that increased employment during the month. And I think there's like 250 industries uh, in the report. 250, 260 industries. And that goes to another. A pretty impressive aspect of July's numbers. It, the job gains were very broad based across. The, you know, they were obviously leisure, hospitality, and government, education, some of that seasonal adjustment. But it was manufacturing, it was construction, it was professional services, it was financial services, information services. There was really only one sector that was soft. You, anyone catch that? Retail. That? Right. Retail. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that that probably reflects some give back because retailers were hiring aggressively during the pandemic, you know, particularly like Home Depot and Lowe's. And then um, uh, that may also, you know, we're going back to online having a big impact on brick and mortar. That was the case before the pandemic, but obviously after the pandemic as well. Okay. Other than the retail, the softness in retail employment, were there any other blemishes in the report? You know, we, we are economists. We tend to focus on the downside. So, Focus on the downside. What in that report would shade it for you? Anything in particular? I'll let anybody go first. No? I think, you know, we're still not seeing a lot of improvement for the uh, female prime age employment to population ratio. So when you look at it by demographic, uh, it's really, you know, African-Americans, Hispanic, and Latino women are just not re-entering the labor force. Yeah. 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 So I think it, along with yeah, just broadly participation in labor force is right. just still almost flat from a year ago. I mean, and we I think expected that to be slower to come back than anything else, but it, it has not moved much. Yeah, it's still the labor force participation is still sixty one point seven percent. And it was sixty three percent ish before the pre pandemic. So about a point and a half, one one and a half percentage points below. And that has not budged. That's not really increased. Hey, one thing I did notice and I was curious, and maybe this is just mix effects, average weekly hours. So the number of hours worked uh, per week uh, is jumped in the pandemic and has not come back at all. Is that just mix? Is that just because you got leisure and hospitality and retail kind of still down and those are, they tend to have, fewer hours per week than say manufacturing or construction. Is there anything else going on there? I mean, so I think the initial jump was probably mix issues, but I think the fact that it hasn't come down at all is probably at least something to do with 
you know, employers leaning on existing workers more. If you look at the, you know, the, the number of workers who are working part-time involuntarily, that's come in a lot. Uh, so it certainly seems like, you know, they're putting their existing workers to work more hours because they're having trouble filling those open positions. And so that's probably preventing that from coming in a little bit as you get that rehiring happening. So that's a good sign. I mean, a good sign in the sense that at some point you would expect employers to hire, if they, when they can, hire more people. And that does, so it's kind of a leading indicator for future jobs, you know, presumably. Yeah. Because yeah, they're actually, sweating, right? yeah, have you noticed there's this kind of conversation going on, or at least I, I've noticed tangentially, I was in the car driving and I, I heard an NPR story about uh, people wanting to work four days a week as opposed to five days a week. Did you, did you, have you been listening to this? Yeah. Yeah. Any yeah there's some companies, right. That have said they're going to adopt a four week, four day a week uh, schedule. Yeah. And the, and the thinking is that it actually will result in greater productivity, even though people are working fewer hours, they're happier they're more, and they're more productive. I mean, does that resonate at all? I'm just waiting for the email from you telling me to take Fridays <laughs> off. That's well, hold it. <laughs> Not that email. Actually, you're still working right now, but I think Larissa Moody's is actually. <laughs> are they working now? I think on fr Friday afternoons, right? On in the summer, we ha don't we have off? I, I don't. I haven't been following closely. It's you're not supposed you, to schedule I, meetings. I don't know if it's technically vacation, uh, but you're not supposed oh, to schedule oh, meetings oh, and things. Oh, I see. It's like no, Zoom but you, Fridays. Hour, you can take Friday afternoons off. I think so. Say that again. What's the? I think if the, you work an extra hour Monday through Thursday, you take. Part of Friday off. I think that's how. Oh, I see. I see. You work like hard. Fed does. You can oh, bank hours. Right. Right. Oh, I see. I got it. All right. Okay. All right, Mark. I got your statistic. Okay. So the percent of employed workers that teleworked in yeah. July. Yeah. Thirteen point two percent. Down from. Hey, Chris got that actually. Didn't he say thirteen? He, he nailed that. I said thirteen. Come on. No. He, I he had thirteen percent. This is thirteen point two. <laughs> different. <laughs> But it's down from 14.4. But remember, uh, this is asking you, be, are, are you teleworking because of the pandemic? Uh, so yeah. there's more people working from home, I think, in general. Is it? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I would expect that might start to go back up, right? Uh, because of the Delta variant. The Delta, yeah. Start watching that. Because there has been a lot of announcements by large corporations that they're not going back to work or they're not asking their people to come back to work uh, as, as quickly as they thought they would because of the, of the variant. So we might see that uh, start to rise. Um, okay, you know, so uh, one, um, one thing I think is always useful is uh, to let people know what, because there's a lot of ups and downs in the data and there's a lot of, as you can, as, as a listener can tell, there's a lot of measurement issues, technical issues that affect the numbers from month to month. So, you know, this month, was a good month, but you know, probably overstated the seasonal adjustment issues that Ryan mentioned are affecting government, education, leisure, hospitality, and that that's temporary. You know, that's going to come out of the data next month and the month after that kind of thing. So, what do you think underlying job growth is? And when I say underlying, I mean abstracting from the these monthly vagaries of the data. Uh, I, I suspect it's not 940,000, but do, do you have a, a sense of that? Do you have a view on that? Just curious. I mean, just to give people kind of a, a benchmark or some context. So I'll give a nod to you, Mark. I think our, our forecast for a little while has been for about 6 million jobs to be added this year. And I think that 
you know, five, 600,000 a month is probably about where it is underlying. I think that makes sense to me. You know, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Ryan, Ryan disagrees based on his smirk. I don't know. Oh no, I was smirking, <laughs> I was smirking about something else. No. Okay. All right. But yeah. So you're thinking 500, 600 K per month, give or yeah. take. So some months you're going to be higher, like July, some months you're going to be maybe August going to be a little lower because you're on the backside of these seasonal adjustment factors and you still have the Delta and we'll come back to the Delta variant uh, shortly. And Since we're on YouTube, we have some charts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. To your Chart. point about like the volatility and the employment numbers, yeah, blue bars show you the change uh, between months, and then the green line is the cumulative uh, increase since February 2020. Oh, okay, or okay, so cumulative a, change. Yep. And I, I, it looks like to my mind's eye, if I do a average of months over the past say six, seven months, say, almost since the beginning of the year. That feels like that would come in somewhere around 600K. You know, something yeah. Like yeah. Okay. So you would say that that's kind of sort of underlying job growth in the, in the current economy. Yeah. I think that's about right. That sounds right. Yeah. And I guess if, if that's the case and everything sticks to script and we can, the economy continues to generate that, and I suspect that it will more or less, that would mean we would recover all of the jobs we lost in the pandemic recession because we're still down despite everything. We're still down like five and a half, six million jobs, I believe. So we'll get all those. Yeah. We'll get all those back a year from now. And then uh, uh, it feels like with that kind of job growth, unemployment should be South of 4% kind of getting back into the mid threes by early 2023. So that would be probably consistent with full employment, right? Something like that. So that feels like the track we're on at this point. Anybody disagree with that kind of perspective? I think that's our baseline forecast, roughly speaking. I, think, I mean, the caveat there is obviously what happens with participation, right? I mean, if you get to three and a half percent unemployment, but participation is still very low, you know, what does that really mean? Yeah. And that brings up a great question. So how do you think about full employment? Uh, you know, when you're, so, so that's obviously the bogey here. We want an economy, we want our economy to get back to something we would consider to be full employment, which I think most people would say we were prior to the pandemic. So what's, oh, there you go. So Ryan put up his favorite. I don't want to influence anybody, but <laughs> so I'll go first. This is my metric for reaching full employment, which is the prime age employment to population ratio. And I think Mark pointed out, at least historically, if you get to 80%, you're, that's an economy at full employment. Yeah. So, so this is, uh, what about people who are listening to our podcast, but Aren't on YouTube. What happens to them when we're we're talking about? I guess they're out of luck. They got to get on YouTube. I think we're allowed to. Are we able? We're gonna have to get Ben and to to chime in. But I think you can post slides on podcasts. You can. Okay. I think so. Okay. So your point is 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 that historically, at least through the last few business cycles, a good benchmark for a full employment economy is a. A, a, a prime age employment to population ratio. Prime age is, you said, twenty five to fifty four. Correct. That is uh, at or above eighty percent. So if the uh, number of prime age employed to relative to prime age population is over eighty, that would be consistent with low unemployment, high labor force participation, a full employment economy. Wage growth is accelerating. That kind of thing. Yeah. Correct. Right. But still, generally, when people think about, 
you know, how, how to evaluate where the economy is relative to full employment, they're still focused, at least most people are still focused on the unemployment rate as their benchmark. So that, what, what, you would think that would be what, three, about three and a half percent would be full employment in, in that ballpark, kind of mid threes, something like that. Chris? Maybe closer to four. Whoa, whoa. Three and a half, four. You're going to go the other way? I was going to say, we don't know until we get there, but I would say my gut is below three and a half. And, and when you say until we get there, what, what are you looking at when to make a judgment that we're full employment? So, I mean, looking at like the, using the unemployment rate to gauge full employment because, you know, economists did the same thing in the 1990s. They did it right before or during the last expansion that the unemployment rate's coming down, we're at full employment, you know, labor supply issues are going to build and they never did. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's why I kind of, I don't know what Dante thinks, but I, I lean towards the prime age employment to population ratio. Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to be careful if you're just looking at the unemployment rate. I mean, it can be misleading, especially, I yeah. think, coming out of this recession. I mean, if we get below 4% and the participation rate comes back somewhere close to where it was, then I think we can feel pretty good about where we are. You know, if the unemployment rate gets below 4% and participation is still where it is today, then I don't think that's something to celebrate. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So if I said to you, hey, unemployment is 3.5%, labor force participation is 63% back to where it was pre-pandemic, and the prime age uh, popula- uh, 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 employment to population ratio is uh, 80%. Uh, and I guess wage growth is strong. It's certainly not decelerating. Looks like it is... Uh, perhaps accelerating, you would say, and real wage growth is accelerating. So wage nominal wage growth less inflation is accelerating. You'd say, okay, we're at full employment. That sounds like, it sounds about right to, to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and wage today- Wage growth is a telltale sign, right? I think so. I mean, yeah. ultimately at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Although right now wage growth is pretty, pretty solid. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. To look at that point, point, you can't just use one. Right. So, but today the unemployment rate, despite it, the great jobs numbers, uh, was 5.4%. Labor force participation rate was 61.7%. And what was the prime age uh, employment to population ratio? It was 77.8. So it was, it was up a lot. Up a lot. Again, good news about July. But mm-hmm. uh, taking all of that, it's, it still says we are we got a ways to go here until we're back to full employment. And I don't know about using the labor force participation rate. Shouldn't we use the prime age labor force participation rate? Because demographics are going to continue to put downward pressure on the overall labor force participation rate. I think that's fair. I, I, I guess in a short period of time, it doesn't, that's not going to really affect things. I mean, so a poor man's way of doing it or, you know, uh, easier way to do it just uh, is not, a, you don't need to account for that, but over, over five, 10, 15 year period, I, I, that demographics matter a lot, obviously, in terms of participation because because of the uh, aging of the population. Yeah. Okay. So so we're we're on our way, but we it's, I think it's important for everyone to realize that we got we got a ways to go. But uh, people are starting to worry about. Um, uh, before I go there, I, I wanted to ask about you know labor supply. There, you know, if you go back. A couple pod, a couple months ago, when we were having our podcast, when we did another labor market podcast, I think the subject at that time that was 
at the top of the uh, discussion was around labor supply. That you know we uh, uh, the economy was opening really very quickly coming out of the pandemic. We had a lot of open job positions, jo and but job growth was still very weak. Well, it wasn't very weak. It was not what we expected. It was three, four, five hundred thousand per month. It wasn't the nine hundred and thousand or a million that we're getting right now. And labor supply was constraining the ability of the economy to create more jobs, to, to fill more jobs. Does anyone think labor supply is an is still an issue in terms of job creation? Do you, I mean, is that playing a role here at all in terms of our ability to, to add to payrolls? I mean, I think the pace is, is pretty good already. I mean, I think it's going to become an issue, you know, getting those millions of jobs back that are still missing. You know, we, we need to get those people back in the labor force eventually. But, you know, would we have seen one and a half million this month if labor supply wasn't a problem? I, you know, I don't I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like to me that there's kind of a cap on uh, how many jobs can be created in a given month. Because just simply operation, business operational issues, HR issues, human resource issues, that you know, if you think about the hiring process, maybe not in small companies, but in mid-sized and larger companies, there's a process, right? I mean, you get resumes, you interview people, you bring them, well, now we do it over Zoom. And then there's a negotiation, and then uh, they say, "Okay, I'll I have to uh, leave my current employee employer, and I'm going to come to you." That could take some time. So the whole the whole thing takes time. It you know not days or weeks. It can even be months. And uh, I think if you look at the kind of the the uh, change in employment month to month, not seasonally adjusted, feels like the cap is about a million per month that there's just very difficult for businesses to hire more aggressively, add to payrolls more aggressively than that. And if that's the case, it feels like we're there, right? We're, we're kind of at the cap. I mean, no matter you know, what else is going on, it's going to be pretty hard to get monthly job gains that are much stronger than what we're getting right now. Does that, does that resonate with anybody? Does that make sense to people? The kind of way of thinking about things? To some extent, I would say so, but and, and businesses do indicate that quality of workers, hiring qualified workers is their biggest issue. Um, so I, from that standpoint, they're still, I think businesses are still being picky and want, want to ensure that they have a good match uh, before they just hire anyone uh, to fill a role. So I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. Don't you think it also varies by industry? I mean, business sure, yeah, professional sure. service, of course, that's going to be... You know, going to take your time, but you see these restaurants, they're trying to mass and large or hiring, uh, you know, mass quantities. Same thing with Amazon. Didn't they have recently have a big hiring event and, you know, they're going to try to fill thousands of positions in a very short period of time. Yeah, that was going to be my caveat. I think you know, if you're talking about leisure and hospitality, I think those frictions that you described, Mark, probably aren't quite so important. You know, I think restaurants are more willing to hire people on the spot or very quickly. And, you know, maybe the labor supply issues are, are actually holding back, you know, overall hiring there. But I think in a lot of, you know, particularly white collar industries and even, you know, something like manufacturing, you know, the hiring process just takes a little bit more time. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, even in some non-professional uh, occupations, you've got things that just slow down the process, right? I mean, in the transportation, if I'm getting hired in the transportation industry, I probably have to take a drug test, right? You got to wait till the drug test comes back and 
so forth and so on. So right. uh, background know, checks, drug tests, all those things take time. Yeah, it, it takes some time for that to, you know, really uh, kick in. There, the, there, of course, the debate uh, sticking to the labor supply issue. There's been a lot of debate about supplemental unemployment insurance. So as part of the American Rescue Plan, that's the relief package that was uh, passed into law last March. That in, that uh, tacked on uh, $300 a week in additional support to people receiving unemployment insurance. And the concern was that, or still is, I guess, that uh, that extra money uh, makes it uh, reduces the incentives for the unemployed to go back to work, at least go back to work quickly. And so we have had a number of states, I think it's up to 26 states that ended that supplemental, that $300 supplemental in, uh, unemployment insurance early. It Under the American Rescue Plan, it was it's supposed to expire in early September. And a number of states ended in June, some in July. Uh, any, any, I, I know all of us have been kind of sort of looking at this issue. Are, is there any evidence out there in the data or circumstantial or anything anecdotal that seems to suggest that that supplemental UI has had a meaningful impact on labor supply and job creation and economic growth? Has anyone seen anything? Nothing definitive. I, there was, I think it was Indeed that did a study looking at job search activity in states you know, around when those benefits were ending. And you know, in, in some states where they ended, it looked like maybe there was a little bit of a, an increase in search activity right afterwards. But in other states where it ended, it you know, didn't look like there was anything or even a decline. And that actually doesn't signal you know, completed job applications and you know, actually hiring and, and employment. It's just signaling sort of the first step of the process. But Yeah. I, I, I saw Chris, I don't know if you've noticed, but Chris and, and Ryan have been kind of smiling, smirking. I don't know what the hell's going on. I'll, I'll let Chris explain. <laughs> yeah. They're texting back right. I, 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 I have three little texting. I, I, I can't get in any more trouble. <laughs> Me neither. But all right, back to your point about labor supply in the yeah. UI. I have, a, yeah. I have a chart for you. Oh, okay, good. Great. I like this whole YouTube thing. So this is, it comes from the labor force flows data. So it tracks people, you know, when they're not in the labor market or not in the labor force, you know, where were they, how are they transitioned from employed to unemployed, et cetera. This is showing the people that are not in the labor force that uh, move to employed. So they jump from being out to having a job uh, and it jumped pretty noticeably, I think in, in July. And that's towards the end. It was about 500,000, maybe a little bit more than that. But if you look at the number of people that went from unemployed to employed, there wasn't this big you know, surge that would you would think would be the UI benefits. This, right. you know, the jump from not in the labor force to employed is probably reopening because you have to be actively looking to receive UI benefits. So they wouldn't be counted as not in the labor force. Okay. So just to reiterate for the folks that don't have the benefit of the chart, what, what we're saying is that in the month of July, there was a a relatively large increase in the number of people that went from being not in the labor force at all. So that means they're not unemployed. They're just, they weren't looking for work. They, obviously, if that's the case, they weren't receiving unemployment insurance to being employed. Uh, so that feels like could be parents who are staying home with kids, uh, taking care of them while schools were online. Now they have summer school in person or camp in person they're going to work. Uh, so that, that might be an example of that. But if the, if the supplemental UI was having a meaningful impact on 
on these decisions, then you would expect to see a large increase in the number of people who went from being unemployed because they were getting unemployment insurance to in to to employed to taking a job, and you're saying no, we're not observing that. We did not see no. that in July. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, bottom line, the circumstantial, it's still circumstantial, right? Because there's the jury's out here. We need more data, a lot more data and more time to collect the data. But at least so far, any impact of supplemental UI on decisions made by unemployed workers to work or not work. Is that fair? I mean, we're all kind of on board with, with that. Okay. Chris? That's right. You're, that's right. Okay. Dante, you're not, you're not, you're being stoic over there. I would agree with that. Yeah. You would agree with that. Okay. All right. Okay. Fair enough. But well, again, this is a script being written. We'll, we'll see. We'll get more data points. I guess the next set of data that we get will be helpful here is the state employment data, right? For the month of July. Right. I did right. look at the state employment data for June uh, because there were some states that ended the supplemental UI. Uh, pretty early on in June, not a lot. I think there were four or five states, and then a number of states that ended in July. And you would think if you're going to end in July, then people was, might start going back to work. If this was going to have an effect, you'd start showing up in June. People start getting taken jobs, but you can't see it. It's not in the state employment data. I I, I couldn't discern it. You know, oh. in the, uh, but we'll see. What do you think about, I mean, I know we need more data points, but we're running out of time. Like we'll get the August employment report and then September is when they were going to expire anyway. So it's going to be very, very difficult to discern early versus just regular scheduled. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that just goes to the, there was a lot of hand wringing about something that probably didn't matter all that much because we were talking about a couple of months of benefits. You were talking about benefits that were going to go on for another year. You were talking about a few months. So wasn't exactly. really going to make that much of a difference anyway. Yeah. I mean, and then one more uh, in the, in the, the belly of this report, you have, <laughs> you look at the number, uh, the number of people that are not in the labor force, but want a job uh, by reason why they're not in the labor force. And uh, in July, the number of people that are not in the labor force, but want a job uh, or are not looking is because they're sick or disabled that jumped. So that's COVID most likely. And then, uh, people are out of the labor force because of child or family responsibilities. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't so I think those that. are much more significant for the labor supply problem than uh, uh, UI benefits. Yeah. Okay. So Chris is going to have to drop out of the labor force soon because uh, summer summer camps are over. Are you dropping out of the labor force, Chris? This is news to uh, me. I found a camp for next week, so at least one oh, okay. more week. Good. Uh, good. Oh, we're good. <laughs> We're good. Um, okay, so another issue that's come up that I'm just curious, you know, what your perspective on is on this is, uh, you know, of course, wage growth has been very strong and uh, a lot of concern about inflation. So, you know, you've got now the economy doing well, lots of job growth, unemployment starting to come in very rapidly. We're talking about full employment by early 2023. And uh, wage growth is already pretty strong. I mean, if you look at the average hourly earnings that are in the BLS report, I think it's four and a half to five percent year over year, which which is you know obviously overstated because of mix effects. But nonetheless, the employment cost index, which is a uh, 
a kind of a uh, better measure of wage growth because it controls for the mix of jobs across industries and occupations. Uh, that's kind of sort of in the mid threes, which is pretty strong uh, and really didn't show any weakening during the pandemic. Inflation is kind of a worry, a concern. Is that, I, you know, what, what, what do you guys think? I mean, are, are we headed to an inflationary problem here because of what's going on in the labor market? How, how are you thinking about that? Do you think that's a, people are just too much drama around this or is there, is there a real reason to be concerned? I'm curious to hear what your perspectives are. Dante? I, I think it's wait and see right now. I think, you know, I think the labor supply issues obviously play hand in hand with what's going on with wage growth. You know, wage growth isn't strong right now because the labor market is super tight. It's strong because firms are competing for a limited pool of workers. So I think if we can get to September, October, and you get some of those workers coming back, that should take some of the pressure off of wage growth, at least temporarily until you, know, you get to an actual tight labor market. Uh, so I think you know, I'd sort of wait and see. I'm not concerned yet, but if you don't see that sort of slow at all in the next few months and you see it continue to accelerate, then I think that that could be signaling a problem. Yeah. Chris, any, any concerns about inflation? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's certainly on the uh, inflation's on the risk matrix, but it's not uh, cause for red flag just yet, uh, I would say. the uh, I'm, I'm still a believer in the productivity story. So I think some of the productivity gains stick and that uh, supports higher wages without leading to uh, inflationary pressure. But wait and see. Uh, it's probably the best uh, strategy right now. So, so the, is your, your point you're making is, okay, we, we've got strong wage growth. Maybe it is going to accelerate, but look, we've got also stronger productivity growth. So That's that right. offsets the impact of the stronger wage growth on businesses' profitability and thus the pressure on them to actually raise prices more aggressively. That That's you're not going right. to see the same inflationary pressure. That's right. Yeah. And you guys, I know you, you, when I say you guys, I mean, Dante and Chris, you guys have been working on a paper, which I haven't seen, by the way, you've been threatening to, to, to show me this paper. Uh, it must be a masterpiece or something at the, this point in time, but on productivity growth, right? Is that right? You guys are working on, on this, on this paper? We are. You want to give us a preview? What's the preview? I, I think there's a bit of a, dis I heard there was a bit of a disagreement on the, uh, the, maybe that's why I haven't seen it yet. You guys haven't come to a consensus. Is that what's going on? We're not trying to come to a consensus. We're we're arguing with each other in the paper yeah. on purpose. You know, Chris is taking the uh, the upside on productivity, and I'm arguing the downside on productivity, and see see who wins. Okay, so let me ask you. That, let me put. Let me frame it. So, uh, productivity growth between World War II and the financial crisis was uh, two percent per annum. This is non-farm business productivity growth. Two percent per annum. Uh, you know, obviously some years higher, some years lower, but on average two percent. And actually, I think it was pretty close to 2% on the nose. Since the financial crisis through the pan up until the pandemic, so that 10-year economic recovery or expansion, it was, it was closer to 1%. You know, early right. on, it was below 1%, later above 1%, but 1%. So that's, that's a pretty large step down in productivity growth. That's a big deal if sustained. And the question is, Oh, and I should say, in the pandemic, since the pandemic hit, it has increased significantly. Now, some of that is definitely measurement issues related to the pandemic, but it feels like it's more than that because it seems to be going on for longer than you would expect if it was simply measurement issue. So the question is, the key question is, is where are we going? Are we going from the 1% back to the 2 or are we going to something less than that, something more than that? What's what's your 
what's the what's your opinion on that? What's your where are you landing on that question? Is that the right way to frame I, it? That's right. I think it, it's framed around our forecast, right? Our forecast is is for it to settle at about one and a half percent, and so we're basically arguing, you know, is it should our forecast be higher, lower, should it stay the same? That's that's we're framing it around a one and a half percent target, you know, as where we might land. And 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 so Chris is taking taking the the high a high side, something north of one and a half percent per annum. So Chris, what would you yeah, say? Back to, back to two? Or back to two. Yeah. Back to two. We're going back to, are we back to two? We're already back to two? We're actually above two right now, right? Yeah. Based on the yeah. latest measure. But the underlying. The underlying, underli yeah. underlying, I think we're back to two. Back to two. And Dante, you're thinking, and, and Dante, you're not just, just doing this to disagree, are you? Or you actually believe that we're not going back? We're, we're, you know, not, I'm not doing it just to disagree. I think, yeah, yeah. I think we're. I'm not saying we're back to one, but I think we we fall somewhere below one and a half percent. I certainly don't think we're at two. I think we're at one and a half, or maybe a little bit below that when this is all said and done. The listeners should know Dante. He's not he, ADP real fiasco, <laughs> and, he, and he's very. He, he, you know, he's he's very argumentative. He does. He, oh yeah, yeah. Taking the other side, always taking the other side. Just and I'm generally not a pessimist, so you know this is an unusual take for me. I think I'm, I'm usually more optimistic than this. Okay, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's not that much of a tangent. So, Chris, quickly, why are you thinking we're going to be closer back closer to two? What, what's the logic behind that, the economic uh, yeah, rationale? It's the technological investments that we've made and the, the fact that during the pandemic, there's been widespread adoption of these technologies, right? It's the cloud, machine learning, We'll work from home. It's not just within the technology industry, but now it's every industry adopting those technologies. And I see that as a real game changer in terms of additional productivity growth going forward. Okay. And there are other Dante, reasons, but that's the main one. That's the main reason. It's technology. We The pandemic has uh, uh, incented- Jump-started. Yeah. yeah. Jump-started. Uh, yeah. Business, hey, businesses have been kind of investing in these things, but not fully incorporating them into their business practices because if it ain't if it ain't broke, why fix it? Kind of logic, you know, but in the pandemic crisis mode, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make big changes. And they made these changes and these, the, uh, the productivity gains are starting to flow through as a result. Something like that. Yep. You know? That's the argument. And Dante, you're on the other side because why? What's the economic logic? <laughs> So I'll give you two quick ones. One is to sort of argue against the tech argument. Like you just said, people, you know, people are making fast decisions, sort of throwing money at a problem in the middle of a pandemic. And so there's clear evidence that firms are spending more money on IT and things. The question is, are they making the right investments? You know, if they had time and planning, would those investments have been made better? And instead of saying, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic, everyone's at home, I need to figure out a way to make this work. Is that the best way to be investing for the future. I don't know. So sure, there's evidence that we're spending more on what could be productivity enhancing technology, but are we getting the most bang for our buck? Is that money going to get wasted? Is some of that going to go by the wayside because we're making these decisions too quickly and sort of off the cuff? So that would be one I'd argue against the benefit of the tech part a little bit. And then you know, the paper we did a few years ago, I think still stands, you know, the aging of the workforce isn't going away. Demographics are still a factor. You know, the share of, you know, when we did uh, work with ADP's data, looking at the share of workers over 65, that share is still rising. That still is going to be a weight on productivity growth. Again, that weight will start to reduce a little bit, but it's still a headwind for at least the next decade. And so I think those two things combined get us, you know, so I, I still think we're going from one to something higher than one, but I don't think there's, you know, all that much reason to be optimistic that we're going to get back to two. 
Good. Okay. Ryan, which, which argument convinced you? Which I'm with Chris. You're with Chris. Because mm -hmm. you are also a, you also think inflation is going to be low. Right. Right. So that would be, that, that I see the thumbs up. There's a thumbs up. Dante, yeah, Chris and I are usually on the same page. Is that right? Pretty close. I, I, pretty close. I didn't notice that. Oh. <laughs> um, Dante, I, yeah. I have to say, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the alternative view here that's being expressed. Yeah. I, I appreciate the, the non-consensus view that you're expressing, but uh, I, I'm, I'm just glad this is on, on video that way. If you know, a couple of years from now, I can come back to it in, in case that I'm right. If not, I'll make sure no one ever sees this again. So. <laughs> by the way, by the way, that paper we did on productivity and related that to the, to aging, I, I that, that's a classic. That is a classic piece we did with Adam Ozemek, who's now the chief economist of Indeed, who we've had on the podcast on remote work. And, uh, I, I, my interpretation of that was, though, that the headwind due to the aging, the, the, the boomer, the, the increase in the workforce that's boomers, is it's still a headwind. It's just starting to blow less hard. Is that fair? I think that's right. No? Right. We, we basically showed, yeah, the headwind peaked or you know, is about at peak right before the pandemic, and then it starts to subside. And that's part of my logic for you're not saying we're going to go back down to 1% again. I think we're going to see some improvement from where we were pre-pandemic because that headwind is starting to, to lift a little bit, but it's still there at least over the next decade. Okay, so, so would the logical conclusion of what you're saying be that you are more concerned about inflation because wage growth is accelerating, and if we don't have the productivity gains, the, that would be more inflationary? Is that, is that fair? I think that's fair. I might also, I'm, I'm, I don't know that I think wage growth is going to continue to accelerate. I think, I think wage growth is going to come back in once we fix those labor supply problems. So I don't think wage growth is going to continue to accelerate from here on out. And so I don't think that's going to contribute to as many inflationary concerns as maybe other people might. Yeah. Hey, one other thought I had was around productivity was that a lot depends on the cost of labor. You know, if the cost of labor is rising quickly, then businesses say, hey, I, I got to figure out how to improve productivity. And therefore, I'm going to invest more. Either I'm going to shift investment or I'm going to increase my investment dollars towards figuring out how I'm going to do what I'm doing with less, fewer labor hours or at least cheaper labor hours. And so it's kind of endogenous, right? It's not, it's not an completely an exogenous thing. And my sense is I, it feels like to me businesses are increasingly focused on their labor costs because they know this is going to be an issue. And by the way, the, the tight labor market was business's number one problem before the pandemic. And all, it feels like all that's happening is we're going back to the same problem we had before the pandemic with the tight labor market. Does that resonate? I see Chris saying- Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That's why I think the uh, natural rate of unemployment is actually a bit higher than what you were stating earlier, right? Because of the productivity oh. gains. That is interesting. That's very interesting. So, yeah. At least it's internally consistent. <laughs> and, and interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, the uh, bottom line, though, we we're we feel pretty good about, despite the strong job market, despite the economy coming into full employment quickly, wage growth strong. Not overly concerned about inflation at this point. No. Okay. So if you look at the June core PCE deflator, it was up 0.4% between uh, May and June. 
uh, the reopening of the economy, all those like, very sensitive uh, industries, plus use and new car prices accounted for three tenths of that. So strip out those one-time events or temporary events, even with strong uh, labor or job growth accelerating, very strong wage growth, core inflation still only ticked up 0.1. Yep. Okay. There's a couple of other topics I want to get to that are related to the labor market. And for the careful podcast, Inside Economics podcast listener, you have noticed that I didn't break apart the conversation between statistics. Or, and by the way, we didn't actually go through all our economic statistics, did we? Now that Chris I ever got it. his. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's a big day. <laughs> we were all so okay. excited about the employment report. Yes, we were truly excited. Exactly. So yep. we're going we'll, we're gonna to table that for this week, but <laughs> I, I kind of melded together the statistics <laughs> and the big topic, which is obviously the labor market. So this is a little bit different you know, for the you know, the careful listener of the inside economics, but we'll go back to the, um, uh, to the traditional way of doing things uh, probably next week. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I have a little bit more to say about what's going to happen next week. We've got a really good guest for next week. Not as good as you Dante, but you know, good guess. Good save. Yeah. Good save. <laughs> so I do have a couple of other issues I want to, I want to tackle before we uh, call it a podcast. And that is, okay. So, Feels like the economy is really doing pretty well here. That job number was about as good as it gets. You know, we're, we're recovering quickly. What does it mean uh, for monetary policy and maybe fiscal policy? I, I know, Ryan, uh, uh, you are advocating for a change in our forecast around monetary policy. And this is a big deal because this would mean that Ryan was wrong. Was wrong. Wait, wait, whoa. We got to separate <laughs> our conversation about when they're going to raise interest rates versus beginning to taper their $120 billion in monthly asset I purchase. don't see any distinction between these two things. But okay, fair enough. No, I'm only teasing you. Uh, no, so I, I was going to be wrong. I, I thought it was going to be January when they actually begin to taper. But if August employment uh, is just above trend that we talked about, I think they're going to start tapering in December of this year. Okay, so taper means reduce the size of their monthly asset purchases. So right now it's 120 billion per month. Uh, they'll likely cut it by 15 billion, uh, you know, and it's going to be on autopilot. Uh, so all the way down to zero, and then they're going to maintain and reinvest the proceeds to make sure their balance sheet doesn't contract for a little bit of, uh, for a period of time. Yeah. So you're saying. Uh, in our forecast, and it's been this way for since the beginning of the year, really, we were, we've been assuming that the Fed would actually taper their quantitative easing, pull back on their bond buying as of the January, excuse me, the January FOMC meeting. That's the January market. 2022, correct. January 2022. And now you're saying we should pull that forward to the December. Is there a meeting in December? I believe. There, wait a second. Is there, I don't know. Is there, we should Is there a meeting a in December? I should know this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll look it up. You guys can talk amongst yeah. yourselves. Okay, and and so you're advocating for us to bring that in, and um, you know that that makes sense to me. So bring that in. But you're also saying, uh, don't change. We should not change the date of the first increase in short-term interest rates, which we expect at this point, January of 2023. So correct. No change there, okay. because it's it gets back to this broad and inclusive recovery. And it's not going to be just the unemployment rate that triggers them to tighten. They want to see the unemployment rates across all 
uh, demographic cohorts come back to where they were pre-pandemic. Mm. Okay, got it. Uh, okay, that makes that makes sense. So um, I think we'll need to make that uh, make that change. Do you see uh, the tapering starting in mortgage or equally split between MBS and Treasuries? But it's not going to be equally split. But they'll, it's they got fifteen billion. Like most of it will be Treasuries, and then the rest will be okay. in MBS. I don't. I mean, maybe you disagree. I don't know why they would focus on MBS first. It's not like that's juicing the housing market. There's been, there's been a lot of chatter about it juicing the house. Yeah. Market. In the last minutes, they kind of, I mean, Powell's kind of pushed against that idea. I think the and bond market agrees, agrees with your assessment, Ryan, because didn't the long-term, the 10-year treasury yield rose quite a bit today. Correct. Uh, we're back up to 1.25% on the 10-year bond, I believe. So up seven, eight basis points. And there is so a we, meeting December 14th and 15th. Oh, is there? Okay, fine. Okay. That's okay. That would make sense. Okay. What about fiscal policy? So, you know, the Congress is uh, in the middle of negotiations over an infrastructure package. And next up would be that infrastructure package is $550 billion over 10 years. And then the uh, next up would be the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package of, of social investments. Do you think this strong economy is going to affect that at all in terms of, you know, right now we're assuming that we're going to get that infrastructure package and a pretty good sized reconciliation package later this year, sometime in October. Do you think this changes the dynamics there? We get something different? Any any change in terms of fiscal policy? So just on the infrastructure package, has your view or your odds, have they shifted at all after the CBO report showing deficit? So, so the Congressional Budget Office, which is the uh, uh, score, they score all of the budget proposals. So they they determine what is the impact on the budget for these different tax and spending proposals. Came out and said yesterday, I believe Thursday, August fifth, that that the five hundred fifty billion dollar package will result in a budget deficit. Of two hundred and fifty billion. Of course, this is over the ten-year budget horizon. So five fifty right. billion in ten years, and that was, I think, more than people expected. I, I haven't. No, I. It probably makes the conversation more difficult, but I still think they pass it. That what what actually happened was they, the CBO, said they could not use repurposed uh, CARES Act or other relief money. That wasn't going to be actually used. It was appropriated, but wasn't going to was not going to be used as uh, reducing the cost. Using it for this, so reducing the cost of of the uh, five hundred fifty billion dollar package. And they said, no, you can't do that. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, that's a close call with whether that's appropriate or not. But but no, I I, don't, I haven't changed my view. I think they're still going to pass it, but. Uh, as is, no, yeah, no changes. Yeah, I think so. Maybe they can come up with another pay for. I'm not sure, but I think they will. The train has moved far too far down the track. I think. I think it's in our forecast at this point. But I, you know, any sense that these strong job job numbers are going to change that dynamic in any way? I, I don't. I don't think so. But okay. All right. Fair enough. Not on All the right. infrastructure, but on the other package, maybe. Right. Maybe. I think it might. Yeah. It might. Okay. I mean, you already have some Democrat uh, senators asking the Fed to reassess monetary policy because they're worried about inflation. 
Democratic senators? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Who's that? Can do you recall who? No. Do you, I mean, you want me to say? Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, oh, Manchin. Oh, Joe Manchin. Yeah, so, he was saying immediately reassess monetary policy. So I, I, to your point, I think the conversation is going to get more difficult around the second package. Yeah. Okay. All right. I want to uh, wrap up with uh, the Delta variant um, and get your sense of how big a deal you think this is or uh, whether it is going to be a big deal. And maybe, Chris, we'll begin with you because you spent a lot of time looking at the epidemiology of this virus and how that's progressing. What is your sense of things? Uh, how, how significant is this going to become? Yeah, so the cases are, are rising and they will continue to rise. Um, under our baseline forecast, we have them rising over the next couple of weeks and then uh, starting to gradually slow down and actually turn the corner. Um, as we get some immunity from uh, from infections versus uh, just vaccination. The good news is vaccinations are up too. So uh, that's driving that. However, in terms of the economic impact, I see very little. I see people still you know, going about their lives, still wanting to eat at restaurants. You do have certain uh, cities like New York City putting in more restrictions. All right. So that certainly will have some impact on uh, economic activity, but I'm not seeing the type of lo- widespread lockdown certainly that we had last year. So I think it will be some bumps in the road here, but I, I don't see this as really changing our trajectory substantially at this point. The uh, hospitalization. It, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, what would it take for you to say something different? You know, uh, what, hospitalizations are the are the key. Uh, that at least that's what the um, government officials have always uh, identified as the issue of why they have to impose lockdowns is to really protect the hospitalization system or hospital system. So. You do have certain communities certainly be affected, but again, by and large, um, most hospitals have capacity uh, and we have better treatments at this point uh, for people who do get infected with COVID. So uh, for that reason, I don't see it as a, as a major risk, but certainly if things were to deteriorate or if the Lambda variant that is now yeah. coming to the fore should take off, then uh, certainly that would, be, that would change things. But. Yeah. You know, I, I have noticed we put together this, I've talked about it in the past on these podcasts, the back to normal index, which is a compilation of government statistics, third-party data, more real-time data, like Google mobility and open table and restaurant bookings and TSA. Number of people go through TSA pre-checks and home-based home, uh, hours data, that kind of thing. And we have it at a state level. And that does seem to have the, the the variant some is seems to be having some impact there that you know florida southern states midwest yep. states uh, are seeing some weakening in economic activity i don't know i so far it doesn't risen to a level where it's starting to affect the aggregate macroeconomic statistics jobs i mean probably still right. for that but feels like it's having an impact yeah yeah i i definitely would agree with that at a local level uh, certainly, certain areas are hard hit, but uh, in terms yeah. of the aggregates, I don't yeah. see. Do you think it's going to show up in, I mean, I know this is an unfair question because a lot of uncertainty around this, but do you sense it's going to show up in the August employment data? Do you think it'll have an impact on jobs in in, in August? Because that survey is coming up pretty fast here. I think not, if it's not next week, it's the week after. 
right? The BLS survey that they use to construct right. the August employment data is not too far away. Yeah. I think it might have some impact, but um, it, you know, it's just going to be a somewhat slower growth, right? It's not, we're not going to see declines, uh, certainly in leisure hospitality. It's just, so it'll be hard to really parse out how much of this is just some of the other factors that we've talked about in terms of slowdown and perhaps in the rate of, uh, or the pace of hiring. I don't think we'll see a significant impact at the national level because there are also, there are also some substitution effects, right? So people won't go to the restaurant, but they'll continue to order takeout, yeah. right? So there might be some of that going on. Yeah. Have you guys changed your behavior at all as a result of the Delta variant? Has it affected the way you're doing anything or thinking about anything? Are you wearing masks again when you walk into Wawa? I mean- I've always worn a mask since the pandemic began. Oh, oh really? Oh, you've never I'm, taken- I still do. Because I mean- Small children. I mean, my, my situation, I got young kids and they're not vaccinated. They can't be vaccinated. So- right. Even though I'm vaccinated, I, I want to be extra careful. So any precaution I can take, that's what I do. Dante, you same? Yeah, we, I mean, haven't done much to date anyway. So there hasn't been that much to change at this point. I think my point was going to be about labor shortages and schools. And I think those are the bigger potential issues from Delta, not so much the top line economic damage, but you know, do we get schools that don't fully reopen? Do we get those same you know, people that are concerned about COVID? You know, do those same issues linger longer than they might have and create those labor supply issues for longer than we would have expected. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I know we're you know, anticipating sending our kids back to school in September and, you know, hopefully that still happens and goes well, but, you know, see how things turn out. So that would be my bigger concern is on the labor supply side. Yeah, to Dante's point, my son's elementary school already sent out a survey about, you know, do you want to be remote because of Delta variant? Do you want all the kids to wear masks? All the, all the, so they're, they're already starting to think about it. So I think Dante makes a very, very good point. You know, the thing that worries me is what's going on overseas, right? I mean, it, it is having an impact on a production at the start of these glo large global supply chains. So the chip industry is a great example of that. You know, there's some Southeastern, I mean, excuse me, Southeast Asian chip plants that just shut down because people are just sick. They can't go to work. And those chips are, critical, right? I mean, I just saw GM, I think it was GM shut down or decided to close uh, a number of, of uh, light vehicle uh, uh, factories down for, for a longer period of time because they can't get the chips to produce the cars. So, you know, it could be the case that this Delta variant and other variants have reverberate back on us, not directly, but more indirectly and disrupt the global supply chains and the supply issues make them much more severe than anticipated and last for longer. So bears close watching. Okay. Um, anything else uh, that you guys want to talk about on the labor front before we call it a podcast? Anything I missed? Uh, we covered a lot of ground there. Anything you want to bring up? Okay. Again, kudos to Ryan. Uh, Dante, you need to work a little harder. Uh, Chris, I have nothing to say for you. You're, you're fine. No problem. Uh, but it, it can all flip, you know, next month, Dante could be right. And I could be very, very wrong. So. That's why that's what I like about Roman. He's, he's always, he's got, he's humble. You know, you notice Mark, Mark didn't call my number last month when ADP was right on the money. You know, I, I didn't get the call to the podcast then to celebrate. I just get called in to get, you know, drug out for the bad. <laughs> very bad true. <laughs> Someone has got to be picked on. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be a celebration for everybody. Somebody's got to be the celebration scapegoat. Every and, right. and, Know how much we respect you, Dante. I know. You know, you know because I know. 
you are the, the first guest that's been invited back. That is a that is saying something. That is. Something. I want- <laughs> I don't know what it's saying, but it's it's something. I'll take no, it. Um, no, it's saying it's big. It's big. It's huge. It's like, oh, there we go. Person, whatever they are, he's doing. It. Uh, those two have been smirking the whole time. Have you noticed, Dante? It's like they've got something going on behind our backs. I have. No, I, we're not I, doing. Uh, I think I. I think I've got a read on it, but uh, yeah. Oh, is that right? Is the three of you yeah, against I, me now? No, we can talk about it after the podcast. But I think we have a new game down the road that we can incorporate into our podcast. Oh, really? Okay, mm-hmm. I got to about this but anyway i i did want to mention uh i mentioned this earlier but i want to reiterate we have a great guest next week uh dan rosen dan founded a company uh called rhodium group rhodium is a consultancy and uh they uh do a lot of work uh, monitoring overseas risks and particularly focused on china and you know we do have this uh, ability for all you listeners to open uh, give us your your um, your uh, vote for what topics you want us to talk about. You can go to economy.com, click on Inside Economics, and vote. Tell us what you what topics you're interested in. And China's U.S. relationships is at the top of the list. That's what you know, the majority of people want to talk about. And so we've got Dan on next week. And I highly recommend. This is a little bit of homework. Uh, he wrote a great essay in Foreign Affairs. Uh, so if you want to get a kind of a sense of what he's thinking and his preview and his, his, his uh, perspective, I would highly recommend that piece. Very well written and articulated, and we're going to have a very good discussion next week. So with that, uh, I want to thank everyone. Uh, have a good week, uh, and we'll uh, talk soon. Take care now. <laughs>